This evening we're going to consider the making of a nation. Making of a nation, looking at Genesis chapter 29 verses 10 through to the end of the chapter. For the past eight months or so, we've been following the unfolding of the promise of God of blessings from when it was first given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, when the Lord said to Abraham, or Abraham as he was then, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In one sense, the great nation in that promise that was given to Abraham referred to the children of Israel, who would be the natural descendants of Abraham and whom the Lord would take to be his peculiar people, his special people, and give them the land of the Canaanites and various other kingdoms in that region. Furthermore, the promise of blessings extended way beyond the children of Israel, to all nations of the earth, but not to every single person on the earth. Only to those who have been baptised into Christ, who have put on Christ, for he is the seed of Abraham. Such people have their citizenship in heaven, regardless of whether they are natural descendants of Abraham or not. It matters not whether they are Jews or whether they're Gentiles. What we're going to consider this evening are the anything but straightforward or God-honouring circumstances that resulted in the birth of 11 of the 12 patriarchs of Israel, details of which are recorded in Genesis chapter 29 and chapter 30. I only read to you perhaps half of chapter 29. You could read By all means, when you get home, read the whole thing for yourself. Chapter 29 and chapter 30. And all I propose to do this evening is give a summarised version of events. Also, by considering two of those 11 patriarchs, our eyes will be focused and fixed on Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we considered Jacob the grandson of Abraham, who was on a long journey from Sheshem in the promised land of Canaan. He was on his way to Haran in Syria, where Laban, who was the brother of his mother Rebekah, Laban lived in um, in Haran. Jacob was fleeing to his uncle Laban, or Laban, having induced a murderous rage in his older brother Esau. Perhaps you can remember that. Jacob succeeded in doing that, uh, he succeeded in inducing a rage in his older brother when he secured the blessing of their father Isaac through deception, through lies, by pretending to be Esau under the direction of their mother Rebekah. That blessing included his inheritance 
of the land of Canaan, which always was God's plan for Jacob, despite the trickery involved in him securing it. In fact, when Jacob lay down to sleep on his journey, having fled from his brother Esau, he had a dream in which the Lord appeared to him and confirmed the the promise to him. And in the dream that Jacob had, the Lord said to him, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. In those words, the Lord promised to give Jacob and his natural descendants the land of Canaan. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That refers to people across the face of the earth being blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places through faith in Jacob's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all this evening, what we'll consider is Jacob arriving in Haran at his uncle Laban and getting married, not once but twice. Let's have a look again at Genesis chapter 29, verses 10 through to 12. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. As Jacob stood at the well, again, he's on this long journey um, from Sheshem. He's arrived in Haran, where his uncle lives, Uncle Laban. He's arrived, he's standing at a well, and he asked some people if they knew Laban. And not only did they affirm that they did know him, they informed him that Laban's daughter, Rachel, was coming. When Jacob saw her, he kissed her which might appear to have been somewhat forward, perhaps somewhat immodest of him, but it's quite likely that he did, in fact, inform her before he kissed her, who he was, how he was related to her, and so on. Also, Jacob was probably overcome with emotion and happiness, having been on the road, having been all alone and uh, and away from his family, to finally see... um, what would have, well, to, to see family in Haran. Jacob was duly introduced to his uncle Laban, who took him to his house. After staying there for a whole month, Jacob contracted to work for Laban for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. We can see um, 
that we can see the arrangement being made in verses 19 and 20. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. Seven years sounds like a long time to me, but I guess it was it was worth it. He he loved her, and he was just thinking beyond those seven years to spending the rest of his life with her. And so he contracted to work for his uncle for seven years so that he could take Rachel to be his wife. Rachel had an older sister whose name was Leah. And a description is given of the two sisters in verse 17. Let's have a look at that verse. Verse 17. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favoured. Apparently, eyes were the chief feature in oriental beauty. But Leah's eyes were not clear, they were not lustrous, they were not dark, they were not sparkling. As for Rachel... To say that she was beautiful and well-favoured, in other words, she was beautiful in her face and and in her figure. And maybe that factored into why Jacob reacted how he did when he first saw her at the well and why he desired to have her as his wife instead of Leah. I don't know. At the end of seven years, Jacob asked Laban for his daughter Rachel, as agreed, that he may go in unto her. In other words, that she may become his wife. However, Jacob, the deceiver, I call him the deceiver because of what happened uh, when he enraged his brother, pretending to be his brother in order to secure the blessings from their father Isaac, So what we have here in this passage is Jacob the deceiver being well and truly deceived by his uncle who brought Leah to him instead of bringing Rachel to him and he went in unto Leah instead of unto Rachel. How that deception succeeded is anybody's guess. Perhaps the room in which Jacob was waiting for, he was waiting for Rachel But perhaps that room was pitch black, I don't know. Perhaps when Leah came, she was veiled. A lot of the commentators suggest that she was veiled. And perhaps, now this is my thought, admittedly, perhaps she didn't say anything, she just kept quiet. We don't know, we're not told. But you, you get what's going on here. Jacob was waiting for Rachel as per the the agreement that he'd made with Laban and instead Leah came, the older sister and he went in unto her and also you'd have to wonder how Leah agreed to be party to that deception she would have known that um, Jacob had just worked for seven years for her younger sister to be married to her but still, there you have it. It's in the it's in the passage here. Leah went went into the room, and Jacob went in unto her. Could it be that 
Could the answer to that one be, quite simply, that Leah loved him? She was blinded by love. And she hoped that in time to come, that Jacob would love her too. Namely, when she brought forth a son for him, as can be seen in verse 32. Look at verse 32. Of verse 31 and 32. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, surely the Lord have looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. That seems to be it, doesn't it? She went along with this deception because she loved him and she, she, it would seem that she was hoping that he would love her when, when they had a, a son. Anyway, when the morning came, Jacob discovered what had happened and he remonstrated with his uncle, who then explained that it must not be done to give the younger before the firstborn. You'd have to wonder why he didn't say that before he got um, Jacob to work for him for seven years. But anyway, that's how it was. The result was that by going in unto Leah, Jacob had taken her to be his wife, and also dear Uncle Laban managed to secure for himself another seven years of cheap labour from Jacob in order for Jacob to do what he wanted to in the first place, to marry Rachel. So that's 14 years labour he got from Jacob there for, 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 for Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel, whom, whom he loved. We've only just touched on the somewhat fascinating and intriguing events that resulted in Jacob fathering the patriarchs of Israel. In summary, what followed, and this is, it really is a summary, what I'm going to give you now, what followed was that, first of all, the Lord, who saw that Leah was hated, opened her womb and she conceived and gave birth to Reuben, we've just seen that, Next she gave birth to Simeon, and then Levi, and then Judah. After that, Rachel's handmaid, or slave girl, Bilhah, bare Jacob a son called Dan. Then the handmaid bare Jacob another son called Naphtali. After that, Leah's handmaid, Zilpah, bare Jacob a son called Gad, and then another son called Asher. Then Leah, Leah again, she bare Jacob a a son named Issachar and then another son called Zebulun. She also gave birth to a daughter called Dinah or Dina. Finally, God opened Rachel's womb and she conceived and she bare Jacob a son called Joseph. I don't know if you were counting along there, but if you were, you would have counted 11 sons and not forgetting the daughter, but 11 of the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And they were born to Jacob by an assortment of women. To be precise, two wives and two handmaids. Leah, Rachel, Zilpah and Bilhah. 
Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, I've come back to this a few times. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it is written, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. I, I don't see anywhere in the scriptures where those words were suspended. Uh, but uh, they're there. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, many years later, they were confirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no reason to, to think that when that, that God first instituted marriage in the time of Adam to when Jesus came in the world, the, we needn't think that there was a time somewhere between the two when what was instituted there was didn't count. One man cleaving to his wife in marriage. That was God's design and that is what God instituted uh, in marriage. Despite the Lord having instituted marriage between a man cleaving to his wife in a monogamous relationship, Jacob nevertheless had 11 sons and one daughter by two wives and two handmaids, or if you like, two concubines. Furthermore, in time to come, Rachel would bear Jacob another son. His name would be called Benjamin. There's nothing about Benjamin in these chapters. That comes later. One might reasonably say that not for the first time, the counsel of the Lord prevailed with Jacob fathering the patriarchs as per the promise that was given that he would be a, a, a great nation. That was God's promise that was first given to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. And we see this promise unfolding with the birth of those patriarchs despite Despite all that was going on there, despite the the Jacob uh, having those patriarchs by two wives and two handmaids. And those patriarchs would inherit the land of Canaan. And that would happen not because of man's uh, schemes and trickery, deception that we see here, but despite all of it. And again, can you see God working out his plan? Not because of what we're seeing here, but in spite of it. For the remainder of our time, I simply propose to consider the third and the fourth eldest sons of Jacob, Levi and Judah. And this is where we really begin to see God working out his purposes. As has already been said, both Levi and Judah were brought forth by Leah, the woman who became Jacob's wife through an act of trickery. And Leah, she's the one who is said to have been hated in verse 31. For all that, in the overruling providence of God, Levi and Judah were born and we shall consider the significance of their birth in the grand scheme of God, who works all things out according to his eternal decree, his purpose and for his glory. First of all, we'll consider Levi. Look at Levi again, chapter 29, and we have him in verse 34. And she conceived again, 
and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. Levi means joined. When the Lord God took the children of Israel to be his special people, having delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, um, I don't know how many years after this, several hundred years after what we're considering tonight, when finally um, the Lord brought Israel, the children of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, and a descendant of Levi, the uh, Levi was consecrated as the first high priest. His four sons were consecrated as priests, and all the subsequent priests and high priests came from the house of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. Levi, um, Leah's son, Levi. The function of the Levitical priest was to represent the people before God, And that involved offering gifts and sacrifices. That's what the priests did. Once a year, the high priest and he alone entered into the most holy place in the sanctuary, whether it was the tabernacle initially or when uh, they were in Jerusalem and the temple was made in the temple. The high priest and him alone, he went into the most holy place, which was uh, a type of heaven itself once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he went in there with blood, and he sprinkled blood upon the Ark of the Covenant and made atonement for the children of Israel, but not just them, but also for his own sins. Because like the people he represented before God, he too was a sinner. However, under the terms of the new covenant of which the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men, Jesus is the great heavenly high priest and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, having once offered himself for the sins of all he came to save. That cannot be said about any of the high priests who were the descendants of Levi. None of them are sitting at the right hand of God. Only Jesus, the great heavenly high priest. And again, Jesus, he did not have to offer um, sacrifices for his own sin. He was without sin. Unlike the Levitical high priest, Jesus never sinned. Also, Jesus, he ever lives to make intercession for those he came to save. Those who come to God by him. He is without beginning of days, he is without end of life. He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And if you're a Christian, he is your great heavenly high priest. I love the idea of having Jesus as my high priest. I love Jesus by the grace of God. But, you know, when you look at chapter 17 of John's Gospel, that whole chapter is um, a high priestly prayer of Jesus to his Father 
If you haven't read it, you need to read that chapter. It's beautiful. Jesus praying to his Father that um, he would keep us from the evil. Jesus praying to his Father, interceding for his people and declaring his will that they be with him where he is to behold his glory. Can you imagine that? You've got your heavenly high priest, the Son of God, declaring his will to his Father that you be with him to behold his glory when you die and when you leave this world. That's a rock-solid guarantee that, it, that that's precisely what you're going to do if you're in Christ. Can you imagine the Father saying no to his Son in whom he is well-pleased? Of course not. There are no more sacrifices for sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, past, present, and future. Has to be, because within the next minute, two minutes, hour, whatever it is, we're going to sin, whether it's in our thoughts, in our words, something. So it's all sin, atoned for by the Lord Jesus Christ in that once and for all sacrifice. What that means for you, dear Christian, to quote some of my favourite verses from the Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through to 22, is that having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The holiest is heaven itself. You have boldness to enter into heaven by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us. Through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. There you have it. You enter heaven itself with full assurance of faith by the poured out blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and he is the high priest over the house of God in other words over the church last of all we'll consider Judah who was Jacob's fourth born by Leah let's have a look at Judah again uh, verse 35 of Genesis 29 and she conceived again and bare a son and she said, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah and left bearing. And Judah means praise. Before Jacob died, he blessed his sons. And what he said to Judah was particularly in- interesting. If you want to turn over the pages and uh, have a look at it with me. The, chapter 49 of Genesis Obviously, this is some years later. um, Jacob was about to die. We can see that in the very last verse of chapter 49. Look at that verse, verse 33. And when Jacob, Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. But before Jacob died... 
he blessed all his sons, he spoke to all his sons. Let's see what he said to Judah in verses 8 through to 10. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down as a couched, as uh, he stooped down, he couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. In those verses, Judah is seen to be a mighty warrior, a lawgiver. He has all the ferocity of a lion. Also, that brings to mind someone in the line of Judah, King David, the warrior king. But it goes beyond King David. In verse 10, Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is generally believed to refer to the Messiah or Christ. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus is described in various ways. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is the root of David, both of which show him to be Shiloh of Genesis chapter 14, 49 verse 10. But also, now this is, this is something, isn't it? Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also he is described as a lamb as it had been slain. And by his sacrificial death, he has destroyed the devil who had the power over death. And Jesus has paid the debt of sin for all who are trusting in him. Having risen from the grave, triumphant over sin, Satan and death, Jesus now reigns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he is coming again. Not to offer himself as a sacrifice, that has already been done. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And when that day comes, the righteous, that is all who have trusted in Jesus as their saviour from sin, they will go away to life eternal, whereas those who have not known God, neither have they obeyed the gospel of Christ, maybe there's someone uh, that, that applies to in here this evening, someone who is yet to repent of your sins. You have not trusted in Jesus. In other words, you have not obeyed the gospel of Christ. Jesus will take vengeance on such people and they will go away to everlasting punishment. Can you see God's hand in all that we've been considering tonight? I know I've gone through it, I've summarised events, but you see with all the schemes going on there, with Uncle Laban, um, 
tricking Jacob into working for him for seven years, thinking that he was going to marry Rachel, but still he married Leah, and one thing leading to another to another, Leah being hated, but even so, God was at work in all of that. And her third son, Levi, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the children of Israel, came from him in that first covenant that we read of in the Old Testament, where God took the children of Israel to be his special people. But in the new covenant of which Jesus is mediator, an altogether superior covenant, Jesus is the great heavenly high priest who ever lives to make intercession for all who trust in him. And then we looked at the fourth son there, uh, born to Leah and Jacob. Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Know him as your Saviour, your Lord and your God. Amen.